perseverance is the intuitive part of grit. But what I mean by passion for long-term goals is that you are staying in love with something uh, and, and in some abstract way, at least going in the same direction uh, for a long time. And when you think about people who have accomplished great things on this planet, I think it's just a necessity that you have to have some North Star or you end up, you know, basically running really hard in all different directions. I'm Jack Newton, CEO of Clio, and this is the Daily Matters podcast. On Daily Matters, we talk with legal professionals, industry leaders, and subject matter experts about the future of law. We explore where the legal industry is headed, how legal practice is changing, and what you can be doing to position yourself for success. This episode of Daily Matters is brought to you by the 2020 Clio Cloud Conference, the world's best legal conference, featuring keynote speakers Seth Godin, Angela Duckworth, and Ben Crump. The conference will take place virtually from October 13th to 16th. Get your passes now before it's too late at cleocloudconference.com. Today's guest is Angela Duckworth, the founder and CEO of Character Lab, a nonprofit whose mission is to advance the science and practice of character, character development. Angela is also a professor at the University of Pennsylvania. She is a 2013 MacArthur Fellow, and she's the author of the number one New York Times bestseller, Grit, The Power of Passion and Perseverance and her TED Talk is among the most viewed of all time. Angela will be a keynote speaker at the 2020 Clio Cloud Conference, which starts virtually on October 13th. Angela, it's a huge pleasure to have you here. Thank you, Jack. I'm excited for our conversation. Me too. Uh, first of all, I'm a, a huge fan, so thrilled to, to have you at the, the conference and on the podcast here. Uh, we, t we talk about your book uh, and the concept of grit at Clio uh, a lot. So it's, it's truly an honor to be able to talk face-to-face uh, -face with you about uh, how, you, how you think about things, about grit in, in detail. I, I'd love to start a conversation off talking about your career path. You've had a very interesting, multifaceted uh, and in some ways, unusual career path. And I'd love to, to hear some of the career highlights and what, uh, what your experience along the way of your journey thus far has looked like. Well, right now, as you know, I'm a professor and I get to see uh, and talk to a lot of undergraduates. And every time I, you know, talk to some angst-ridden 22-year-old, <laughs> it's like, oh, I don't know what I want to do with my life. And, you know, I'm a hard worker, but what, what am I going to work hard at? Um, I'm sure you had that. I did, right? Like we all kind of go through that. And I think one thing that surprises the students that I talk to is when I say, look, for me, it took a decade. I hope it doesn't take you a decade, but I think for most people, it takes them more time than they would like to, to find something where you wake up in the morning and you're like, wow, I love, I really do. I love what I do. Um, and, and even at the point that I am at age 50, like it, it's, um, it's part of who I am, but how did I get here uh, being uh, so excited about psychological science and how it can improve people's lives? Um, I was, uh, you know, raised by uh, Chinese immigrant parents in, in suburban Philadelphia, so on the New Jersey side. Um, when I was in college, you know, I was hearing, especially from my dad, that, you know, like the thing to do was to go to medical school, like all of my cousins. Uh, right. And, um, you know, I think I'm one of the few, not, uh, by the way, we do have a lawyer in the family. Um, and, uh, and, and so I, I gravitated to actually education. And I think it was because I really like kids a lot. And I think in the 10 years uh, between uh, graduating from college uh, 
and and actually graduating with all my pre-med requirements, by the way, and then, you know, transitioning to enter a PhD program at the age of 32, um, and that PhD would be in psychology, I, I basically did a lot of sampling. And that is the term that um, many scientists use for this trial and error process where we, you know, even outside of professions, you know, pick up a sport, decide, yeah, sport's not for me. So I do think that grit paradoxically, uh, which I study, you know, sustained passion and perseverance for long-term goals requires a lot of uh, sampling, which means quitting things. And you've, you've done some of that in, in your life. What, what did you find that you most connected with? Tell, tell me about how your, your journey kind of helped you sample and maybe understand what you you liked and what you attached to is the the thing you would end up having that that long-term perseverance in pursuing the first job that full-time job that i sampled was um, running a summer school for middle school kids from the cambridge area so i i uh, started the school and i ran it i was the oldest person at age 22 because the staff were all high school and college kids so we were older kids teaching younger kids um, and all of it being run by essentially a kid right a 22 year old named angela um, i did that for a couple of years i liked and I think this is the right question to ask, like what gave me energy about it? And then what, what wasn't quite a fit? I really liked the kids and I loved uh, the idea of working um, on the future, right? Education. Um, maybe what I didn't like about it, what didn't give me energy was that it was as anybody who has ever run anything, like just a lot of logistical difficulties. Right. Didn't love that. Then I went to uh, Oxford. I got a master's in neuroscience. I loved about that, um, that, you know, I really do like understanding the brain and the human mind from a scientific standpoint. Um, and then what I didn't love about that was that like, like, wait, how is this helping anyone? Where are all the kids? Like, how's this, you know, having impact? Um, I went to McKinsey for a year. What I liked about that was like a lot of smart people thinking analytically, something I know you and listeners know a lot about. Um, what I didn't like about that again was kids missing out in the picture. And then I actually spent a fair number of years in and out of the classroom in various uh, ways, you know, being a, a teacher, a math teacher in, in high school and middle school in public schools. Um, and I think ultimately what brought me to my final destination, as it were, as, as, as somebody who identifies as a psychological scientist, is that I finally got to do something where I got the energy of being an analytic thinker, like a McKinsey consultant, a scientist, like I had been trained to do in my major um, of neurobiology and neuroscience. Um, and then also I got back to kids because what I usually study um, is the development of, of grit and, um, and other capabilities. And so um, I always say to the you know, younger adults that are in my office hours, uh, even if those office hours are on Zoom now, is that it is a bit of a wandering path. I think no matter how uh, we would like the path to be straight as an arrow, it is for most people you know, very serpentine. Maybe that's something to you know, acknowledge and lean into as well. I think so many of us are taught that it should be a, a completely linear path. And, and if you're, you're straying from that linear path, you're wasting time or getting distracted or, you know, whittling your life away. And it's certainly not the, the case. You need to embrace the, the fact it's going to be a bit of a, a sampling exercise. And I love that, that frame. Uh, so, Angela, you've certainly studied the mind a lot. You've studied neurobiology at, at Harvard, neuroscience at Oxford, 
and psychology uh, at uh, the University of Pennsylvania. When you study the, the mind and what you find to be, tell me what you find to be most surprising about how the human mind works. What are some of the things you've learned that are especially surprising, especially as it relates to how the way we think shapes our behavior? You know, when I was in uh, my undergraduate years, you know, learning about the brain for the first time, this is now, you know, talking about the late 80s, right? Um, what the received wisdom was uh, from science at that point was that the brain um, was pretty much what it was going to be, right? By the time, you know, you reached uh, certainly our age, but, you know, even maybe your, um, you know, your 20s, um, that there was some amount of plasticity, but not really meaningful change. I think one thing that has uh, shifted in the decades since I went to my, you know, uh, first neurobiology class in the 80s is that we understand that the brain is a miracle. I mean, it is plastic um, in, uh, in meaningful ways uh, all throughout the lifespan. And um, when you think of the brain as something which continues to develop and improve and grow throughout much of the lifespan, it makes you a little more optimistic about what you can change about yourself. Um, and um, in parallel to all this brain research on plasticity, there's been advances in psychological science where we now realize that, for example, personalities change in meaningful ways. And uh, by the way, you for the better. So psychologists sometimes call this the maturity principle, um, that in most ways, most people, with some exceptions, um, you know, get better. They become more um, agreeable, more understanding of other people's situations, more dependable, more responsible, better executive function. So I think the story of the brain, as we now understand it, is that it is a miraculous organ. It sets us apart from all other species, and its signature quality is plasticity and the capacity for learning, which we never lose. It's not something that um, is restricted to childhood. And, and that is counter, I think, to what so, so many of us learned uh, earlier uh, in, in our teaching and so on, is, is that there is a, a certain amount of uh, inertia that kicks in after you're you know, past your, your teens and that your, your, your brain almost starts decaying at that point. And, and, and what you're saying is that the newer research is really reflecting the fact that this is something that builds over time and it's a muscle that you can continue developing uh, as, as long as you're alive. You know, um, muscle is exactly the metaphor that um, many of my colleagues like because, you know, muscle muscles kind of obviously get stronger or weaker with use or disuse, right? I mean, nobody would think like, oh, you know, I went to the gym 10 times in 1989. Like, why aren't I strong now? It's like people <laughs> right. are like, oh, wait, hold on. No, you have to keep going to the gym. And by the way, if you really, you know, do your exercises uh, methodically, like, yes, you can get, you know, stronger, more flexible, et cetera. So it's a great metaphor. I will also say, you know, when you think about muscles, you're like, wait, I also remember that when I was 16, I was pretty much physically <laughs> invincible like right. you know like so let me just say this about the brain um it's not it's not that we are exactly the same level of plasticity and suppleness uh in terms of our brain and our like as a three-year-old no the three-year-olds are better at learning than the 53 year olds right like but but the point is that the 53 year olds still can learn so plasticity never goes to zero and and remains at a level where it's like meaningful but but it's also true you know when you thought um when you said like oh decline after you know say your teen years well it is also true, so I have to footnote this, that you know, in terms of, for example, processing speed, and I have teenagers at home, so it's it, like kind of so clear to me, processing speed, just like clock speed, it does kind of 
peak around like 17. So if you ever have the impression that this young whippersnapper that you just hired seems smarter than you, well, all things being equal, statistically, they probably are a little, you just know more and you're probably wiser. Um, And, and I think that's maybe the way to think about, uh, you know, development that like, you know, we never fully lose our capacity to learn. It's, it's always a substantial um, uh, capacity and uh, you are accumulating wisdom, uh, strategies, self-awareness, and I think those are the things that, um, you know, the younger generation is always going to be catching up to the older generation on. Right, right. Great. Um, let's shift gears a little bit, Angela, and, and talk about grit for a moment. So you, you've touched on the term grit uh, a couple of times in our conversation so far. This is the, the concept you talk about in your, in your book, obviously, in your, your TED Talk, and, and you define grit as passion and perseverance for very long-term goals. And and being able to run the marathon rather than just the the sprint, essentially. Can you expound on this definition for for our audience and and talk more completely about what you mean by grit? When I was just starting out in graduate school, which remember, picture me at age 32, um, I, I, at that point, you know, being a little bit older than uh, most of the students, and in fact, I think I was even older than some of my professors, um, (laughs) I did know what I wanted to study, though. I really wanted to reverse engineer human achievement. I wanted to ask the question, like, can we demystify um, even the highest level of human achievement? Is it really just that they're geniuses? Like, you know, is there nothing that we could maybe emulate or imitate? Um, And uh, so that led me to interview high achievers across uh, different fields, uh, including law and, um, uh, you know, also the arts, music, uh, sports, um, science, medicine. And, you know, the more of these interviews I did with um, outstanding performers, the more I got um, interested in what the through line was. Like, what do, you know, what does a world-class ballerina have in common with the Nobel Prize economist. Um, And I think the through line ended up being, um, I mean, I'm a fan of alliteration. So I'm passion and perseverance for long-term goals. It's really about stamina uh, in the direction of effort. That's perseverance, right? Like, do you keep going even after setbacks? Do you go on for years and work really hard? Um, But the commitment part is the passion. Like, Like, if you if you work really hard, as I'm sure most people that you uh, you know, maybe in your circles do, but you're working at like one thing and then, you know, two years later, you're working on a different thing. And then, you know, a year later, you've shifted again. Um, I, I think that you don't make... Uh, substantial progress, like, because you keep changing direction. So perseverance is the intuitive part of grit. But what I mean by passion for long-term goals is that you are staying in love with something uh, and and in some abstract way, at least, going in the same direction uh, for a long time. And when you think about people who have accomplished great things on this planet, I think it's just a necessity that you have to have some North Star or you end up, you know, basically running really hard in all different directions. So can you talk a little bit about, you managed to pull apart something that that really highlighted this grit and this long-term view as being something that drives that that profound long-term success and, and that it's something above and beyond just raw capability. If you think about, you know, IQ or other measures of of raw intelligence, which is maybe a, a bit of a surprising and counterintuitive finding. Can you, you talk about that a little bit more? 
you know, it's personal for me really, because, um, you know, my, my, my father who's no longer, um, alive, but when we were like little kids, you know, my dad just, you know, I mean, not every day, but he, he really liked to think of, uh, about, about, you know, who was more able and, and who was more gifted. And, you know, I think in his own family, he had this like rank ordering among the kids of like, you know, who's the smartest in his head, right. Of, uh, uh, who was, you know, he, he rated himself pretty close to the top there, by the way. <laughs> Um, and um, I don't think he thought of me as being especially brilliant. I mean, he used to say, like, you know, you're no genius. And um, I just out of the blue. And um, I, I think that may have given me a little chip on my shoulder to, to try to understand, you know, what other than innate ability, you know, innate giftedness, like, could there be that would determine how uh, much of an impact you would have as a person. Um, and, and what I find in my research and what has now been found by lots of scientists who uh, study grit is that it's not positively correlated with intelligence. Um, it doesn't go hand in hand. It's not that smarter people based on IQ scores are grittier. Um, and in fact, in the largest sample that I've collected, that's at the um, US Military Academy at West Point. It is the largest, um, well, it's the oldest military institution uh, in the United States. We find that grit, uh, which has been collected, I think, almost every year for more than a decade, is um, usually negatively related to uh, standardized um, intelligence scores or cognitive ability scores. So um, I think this distinction between, you know, what comes easily to you uh, and how long and hard you're willing to work for it are um, are distinct. It doesn't mean, by the way, that ability doesn't matter. It just means that it's not enough. Um, and, and I find it so fascinating that, you know, the more able people don't necessarily get up earlier, stay up later, uh, and stick with things for, for uh, more years. By the way, I hope you were able to, to buff that chip out of your shoulder when you won the <laughs> MacArthur Prize, which is sometimes called the, the genius prize. So, <laughs> yeah, there was a there was a small satisfaction there, and um, <laughs> my dad loved prizes, so it was it was a good day when I got to tell him about that. That's great. Um, so. Tell me a little bit about the relationship between grit and and burnout. Um, and I, I think it's something, you know, our, our listeners who are legal professionals would be especially interested in, in hearing about how you think about um, this ability to you know, persevere and the focus on long-term goals as as potentially being being a way of avoiding burnout. And, and, and tell us a little bit more about that relationship and maybe to start out to find how you think about burnout as well, because that's something that is often framed in different ways. Uh, burnout, um, when scientists talk about burnout, um, you know, it, it's the uh, it's psychological state of exhaustion um, that has a few hallmarks. So one of the hallmarks of this state of exhaustion is just the feeling. I mean, that's the term burnout, like feeling like you're really at the end, like that you um, are tired, um, that you can't go on, um, at least the way that you have been going on in the past. Um, another hallmark is a sense of helplessness, right? The, the sense that like you're putting in effort but there's not a lot coming out on the other end, that, that things are beyond your control and you're no longer having the impact that you um, maybe wanted to have or used to have. Um, and then also there's an interesting um, sense of what's sometimes called depersonalization and um, other people would call it like skepticism. But, but what it really is, it's like a, a lack of feeling uh, connected to your client or to the world. Like it, there's a kind of like remove that is um, not, not a good remove. It's like uh, feeling like a lack of, uh, you know, uh, 
you know, personal connection. So this uh, state, by the way, is, um, as you know, you know, um, higher in some professions than others. And I think it's interesting that the uh, professions that burnout is a, a, a particular problem end up being the service profession. So medicine, teaching, and of course, the law. And these are all uh, professions where like you are serving another person, like you are helping. Um, and um, I think the irony, or maybe not the irony, just the, the fact that you are so caring about what you do and because other people depend on you, I think actually sets you up for burnout, right? If you just didn't care, you would not get burned out. You know, you're like, oh, whatever. Like, right. you know, <laughs> who cares? Like, so, so um, I think the vulnerability to burnout actually in some ways is a, a testament to the the compassion and the, the the sense of purpose that people would bring to a profession like the law. My best friend in the world is named Sue and she's a law partner. And so I got to have a kind of a first, um, well, it's not a first person, but I kind of a front row seat anyway to the to the journey of a, a somebody in, in, a, in a legal career. And it really is, it's so hard. And I think the, the fact that the clients are, um, uh, needing things when they need them, you know, how they need them uh, uh, on their own schedule, you know, amplifies a lot of the um, pressures that any of us would be in. So the question of like, well, how does grit relate to burnout? Um, well, empirically, there have been a number of studies looking at um, uh, burnout questionnaire data and then grit scale scores, so the scale that I developed to measure passion and perseverance. And generally, they're inversely correlated, meaning that if you're higher in measured grit, you would be potentially um, less uh, likely to feel burned out. But most of these studies are cross-sectional. So all on one day, I measure both. And I wonder myself whether the grittiest people, you know, the people who are just incredibly passionate and persevering, if you follow them over time, you know, might at some point be the ones who would be vulnerable because, uh, because they care so much. And the advice I would have on this, Jack, which is, um, I think the most important thing to say was like, okay, great. That's what science says about what it is. And like, well, but like, what do I do? Um, so that this advice I'm going to borrow from a sports psychologist actually named Michael Gervais. He's the sports psychologist to the Seattle Seahawks football team. And I asked him about burnout, um, especially because, you know, for athletes, there's the version of burnout, which is basically overtraining, um, where, where athletes also like, like you might feel one day, like, you know, you wake up and you're just flattened. You're just so exhausted. You feel like you. So he says uh, to his athletes, um, you know, the answer is actually kind of the most logical thing, which is you actually have to do less. You have to like, the prescription is like sleep. The prescription is, you know, take some time off. The prescription is a vacation. The prescription is reducing hours. And I know that some of the grittiest people really don't like that prescription because their whole identity is like, staying on the treadmill longer than anyone else. But I think it's a really, uh, you said marathon, not sprint. If you really think of your career and your ability to help other people as something that you can't sprint through, um, that you would hope to do it for years, if not a lifetime, then you have to uh, take the uh, recommendation of this uh, you know, great sports psychologist and, um, and, and actually kind of take your foot off the gas a little bit. That's great advice. And I, I, I'd love to explore more of the the ways some of your ideas apply to the the legal profession and and you you point out that in in some cases you see an inverse correlation between you know raw talent and 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 grit and 
when you have a lot of raw talent, law is is one of those professions that your your, your parents and it sounds like you, you had some of the same kind of pressure. Law, medicine, you're being ushered in in those uh, directions. But then when you get in the profession, you, you you get on the front lines, and you're going to need to be gritty if you're going to survive the the pressures of the environment around you. Uh, in Can your, I ask your, you just like, <laughs> because um, I told you I had a front row seat, but I wasn't on the stage because like I didn't become a lawyer. I just, I hear stories from my, my good friend, who's by the way, um, a very fulfilled lawyer. So she's, she's uh, not exiting the profession. She's staying in it. But like, what are the pressures? Like, you know, the law school is one thing, but like, what would a young lawyer encounter in terms of these challenges that, you know, they didn't experience before? I, I think the the challenges are often going to be uh, navigating so much that that law school didn't prepare them for. If we look at you know law school does a great job of training you in the the art of law, but when you graduate from law school and and many new graduates are uh, in a in a position where they're hanging their own shingle and starting their own law firm, needing to run a business, find clients deal with, as, as you mentioned, I think the emotionally charged nature of so many of their interactions with, uh, with clients and, and maybe this, 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 this image they had of what, what pursuing law would look like in law school uh, doesn't end up mapping very cleanly to what their day-to-day -day reality looks like. And the challenges, I think that can be especially um, uh, um, deep challenges are, are around how to run uh, a, a business effectively, how to run a law firm effectively. So those are some of the things I see on, 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 mm. on the front lines in terms of what the, you know, the young lawyer that maybe uh, fell in love with the idea of what the noble pursuit of the of law and order and, and justice would look like, uh, finding a way to actually realize that in their, their day to day, um, or conversely, joining a, a big law firm and having, you know, an unbelievable set of pressures uh, put on them where, you know, in some cases they're, they're treated very much like fungible commodities by the, uh, by the partnership that will, you know, burn out and move out within the next year or two. And that, that burnout you're describing is almost an expected outcome, not something to be, be avoided. So I think that's, yeah, that, the that's really helpful. Like, you know, texture. And I, I think, um, you know, it could be analogously like somebody really likes to cook and then they start a restaurant. It's like, cooking and restaurants have some overlap, but guess what? Running a restaurant has lots of other features that don't have anything to do, honestly, with like- That's a really great analogy. <laughs> I think it's very much it. some of the, the same challenges. So here's a, a thought about, you know, why it might be that, um, uh, that intelligence and, and ability, you know, having a great LSAT score, like, you know, and just being somebody who's excelled and for whom, you know, learning has in some ways come easy, like why that's not an entirely protective factor when you encounter these new challenges. You know, if you grow up and you are the kid who's like, you know, the smartest one in the class and everything's coming fast to you, you know, you just don't have a lot of experience in falling down, stumbling, feeling awkward and clumsy and like making a bunch of mistakes. And I wonder whether that lack of experience, that lack of practice and the, 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 the fact that you've been able to skate by on these other strengths, um, it is a bit of a vulnerability, you know, when it comes to, you know, because I think no matter who you are, and I, 
think you'll agree with me, Jack, you've certainly interviewed a lot of people. Like, no matter who you are, you're going to get just smacked in the face by life, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and it's just like, wow. So, so I think that if that it happens to you for the first time and you're like 28, you know, like that's just hard. Um, whereas somebody who's really struggled uh, in lots of ways along the way might have a certain robustness and a certain skill set. Um, uh, so, so that doesn't mean, by the way, that the 28-year-old can't learn those things. But I do think it gives you um, some uh, some idea of like how we might need to support some of the brightest, in fact, um, you know, young lawyers and in their journey. Have you refined some of your uh, thinking on on how to develop grit? You, you answer the the question sometimes saying, you know, I, I don't really know what the formula is. I, I know when I see it and it's a trait that you can identify, but if you're, uh, you know, a parent that is trying to teach their kids grittiness, if, if you're somebody that is in a profession uh, or you're just in life and you're trying to figure out how do I get more gritty, uh, what's that look like? Do you have some advice on how to develop that front? So I'm teaching a class now um, that I created called uh, Grit Lab, and it is the science and practice of passion and perseverance. So my students are undergraduates at my university, University of Pennsylvania. And um, let me just give you um, some of the kind of key design features that um, I think, you know, you could take a, a like a, a kind of a page from that and think like, okay, this is how I apply it. So one is like, I really believe that we all grow faster um, uh, when we have some understanding of like what it is that, that we're actually trying to develop. So imagine uh, setting goals and making plans, right? We all set goals, we all make plans, but there is actually like a 40 year uh, research literature on the best way to set goals and make plans. And what happens in the brain and in the mind when you set goals and make plans? I think that if you learn that material, if you have like the user manual for your own mind and brain, like you'll be better at then like acquiring that skill set. So I have a lecture on setting goals and making plans and the students learn all about it and then they actually do practice it and they get feedback um, uh, from their own life experience, but also from their teams, they're all in teams and then their TAs. I think the um, the meta lesson for me is that um, if, if you want to have children who grow up um, to be gritty or to be grateful, to be kind, to be curious, I think if they understood, you know, how those things worked, like, you know, why does the brain have the state of curiosity and what is it when you're bored? Like, what happens to attention when you're bored and why does learning fall off like a cliff? Like, that will help them the next time they're bored like at least understand what's going on and then identify you know ways to be less bored etc so so the 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 kind of secret sauce i think of grit lab is like that understanding and self-awareness will catalyze uh maturation um and i think um as a parent um i was wondering i was actually pregnant with my second daughter when I was in uh, in my first year of graduate school. So I basically became a psychologist and a mom all at the same time. And I remember thinking like, I wonder how old your kids have to be before you can talk to them about motivation and talk to them about goals, talk to them about, you know, challenge and failure. And I will tell you this, it's really young. Like kids are, like we said, so smart. And as long as you don't use a lot of jargon, you know, if you read children's books, you will be amazed how much psych psychological um, 
like richness there and go read frog and toad and you're like oh wow so kids can at a very young age understand these things and i think it's not too early to bring them along on this educational journey that i do think will help um, catalyze their development that's great well angela i've really enjoyed our conversation we're going to be digging more into the concept of grit and and how it relates to the legal profession in our conversation at the Clio Cloud Conference on uh, October 13th. So I'm lo so looking forward to uh, chatting to you again then. Uh, thanks again for joining us on the podcast. It was a huge pleasure to, uh, to chat with you and, and to hear from you. And I'm looking forward to picking up our conversation soon. Thank you, Jack. I'm really looking forward to the conference as well. Thanks for joining us on Daily Matters, a podcast from Clio. Rate and review wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Daily Matters is produced by Andrew Booth, Sam Rosenthal, and Derek Bolin, and hosted by yours truly, Jack Newton. Thanks also to Clio, the world's leading cloud-based legal technology provider for supporting this podcast. 